This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your jumper. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. My name's Megan Hughes. Today, China's trade relationship with Australia got complicated this week, but behind the scenes, it looks like it could be thawing. Australia's agricultural industry faces a nationwide challenge, accessibility, but it doesn't have to be that way. Everyone else saying, oh no, you can't do that. (laughs) Well, it's true. It was. was. How are you going to do that? What about this? Just shut up and let us do it. Like, yeah. And when you want to grow dragon fruit in Samoa, expert help can be hard to come by. So one farmer found an unlikely ally in a fellow farmer in Queensland. It's one of the plants we'd like to see expand and grow in Samoa. But for that reason, we need to know a little bit more about it and the diversity of varieties that are available. But first, serious animal welfare concerns were raised this week about the shipment of 1,208 cattle from Darwin sent for slaughter near Broome. Now, it's understood that four cattle actually died during the voyage and another 27 died at an export depot. The Kimberley Meat Company is WA's only abattoir and they had to get special permission from the state and federal governments for this shipment after flooding in January. It left that abattoir inaccessible by road. Belinda Varischetti has spoken to Erin Nolan from the Kimberley Meat Company and she explains the measures they had to take on the boat. It's well within tolerance and any live export shipment would be proud to have that kind of success rate. Um, We were subjected to a very rigorous approvals process, probably more strict than most live export voyages would be expected to achieve. Um, We've had glowing reports from federal agencies who issued those reports and our involvement in the handling of the cattle was limited to the time that they arrived at our facility, which was the afternoon prior to slaughter. Um, Prior to that, the cattle were handled by third parties and not within our care control or management. So you had to abide by all those sort of strict animal welfare rules and regulations that you would see for livestock export shipments like the animal health checks, the independent vets, the medicines on board, the journey, stocking number requirements, ventilation, all those sorts of things were followed? Absolutely. We received federal approvals, state approvals um, from various different government agencies at both state and federal level. And we would probably suggest that the criteria on this particular voyage was more stringent than normal live export requirements given that it was the first time that it has happened and extra precautions were put in place because of that. Now 1,208 cattle were on board the voyage at Darwin to Broome. Three died on the voyage. What happened once the cattle were unloaded at the other end at Broome? We were required to use an accredited export holding facility to hold the cattle until they were ready to be slaughtered in the daily kill numbers. There were a small number of cattle that died within those facilities, but they were not managed by us. So we're not able to speculate on the cause of those deaths and the government departments and relevant agencies will undertake their own investigation. 
if they see a need to do so. You're investigating the deaths that occurred at that facility at the Roebuck Depot? Yeah, the process is just completing now and we'll undertake a close-out report for our own internal purposes and make sure that we've completed all of our requirements as expected. That was Kimberley Meat Company's Erin Nolan speaking there. Now, the export depot is really in the firing line this week, but it's defended its handling of the animals. So the Roebuck Export Depot is owned by a subsidiary or company of the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation called Primary Partners Proprietary Limited. CEO Joe Morrison says it's an unfortunate event and his team did all that they could. Obviously, from our point of view, we take any deaths has been very significant and we don't want to see any deaths, even though there's some industry standards around that. But we uh, uh, seen that there were some of the cattle that arrived that were in poor condition. And so the first thing we did was to ensure that there was a vet that came and did an assessment and uh, applied to some of the cattle that were uh, in poor condition, uh, some antibiotics to ensure that the, the injuries that they sustained were able to be treated whilst they're in the holding yards. So were some cattle put down or did they die of other causes? Uh, There were some cattle that had to be put down uh, and there were some, obviously, as you said earlier, that were uh, deceased on the ship. So when did you take responsibility for the cattle? The KMC says that um, most of the deaths happened in the hands of a third party, which was Roebuck Export Depot. When did the depot's duty of care start and when did it end? So our duty of care starts uh, when they're being unloaded and they arrive at the depot. But I think the fact of the matter is that that we are responsible for cattle to be uh, arriving in the export depot in good condition. So I refute any suggestions that uh, we led to those deaths. And so that's something that needs to be cleared up because there's obviously some level of uh, an issue there. And so when cattle arrive, we expect them to be in healthy conditions. Uh, Unfortunately, that wasn't the situation here. When you say they weren't in healthy condition, what do you mean? What were some of the issues that the staff encountered? Uh, Well, I mean, we're waiting on a vet's report for that, so we can't really comment on that until we get that report. Okay. What do you think sort of went wrong? Because uh, I'm, I'm wondering, were the usual people who usually ensure compliance, were they on site and available and part of the offloading and then management at the site of those yards? Uh, well, we can confirm on the WA side of things that the, the right um, processes were followed. We can't confirm uh, that that process was followed in the Northern Territory, however, because we do expect that the authorities in each jurisdiction would perform their responsibilities in ensuring that the loading and unloading of cattle uh, is done in a appropriate manner. Because there's some suggestion from certain people that maybe there wasn't as many experienced people on the ground when the cattle were unloaded. That's something that you're rejecting. Oh, Absolutely. Who was on hand? Uh, our export uh, uh, yard management team, and I've, I've got full confidence in, in them and the information that they've provided in the circumstances. There is obviously some ways to go in terms of ensuring that the information is clear and concise, and we've obviously got some conversations to have with the Kimberley Meat Company about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to speculate any further in relation to some of those matters until we get uh, some of those questions cleared up. So there will be an internal investigation from your end? Uh, we've already started that. And when? what is the process from here? When are you hoping to sort of have a clearer picture of what's happened? So we, we hope to have a clearer picture, you know, in the, in the coming weeks, obviously. We've, uh, we're waiting on the VETS report, which we're expecting any day, as to the uh, status of the health of the animals that arrived in, uh, in Broome. 
uh, and we're also looking at our internal procedures and uh, policies in relation to the conduct of uh, export depot staff. But I don't have any issues at this point in time with that. I think there are questions that need to be answered probably by KMC, but I don't think um, elevating those in the media is the right space to do that. There are still a few cattle being held. What's the latest on the situation of, of how many are still yet to be sent to the processor? I understand that there are a number of head. Uh, I can't give you the exact number at this point in time, still uh, on site that are receiving antibiotics for wounds that were sustained uh, on the transport from Darwin to Broome. Uh, And then there's a a very small number of uh, head in the yard that uh, are still being monitored by the vets. So it's only a small number of cattle that are still within the yard. I think most of them being processed now. That was Joe Morrison, the CEO of Primary Partners, speaking with Jessica Hayes. Now, the ABC actually received a follow-up statement clarifying that Primary Partners' responsibility for the cattle took place at the point of possession on the property of the Roebuck Export Depot. And we're going to bring uh, more details to you uh, when the investigations of what actually happened on this ship and in this depot when they're made public. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. So the Thor and Australia's trade relationship with China, it got a bit complicated this week because the Australian government had actually warned about record defence spending by Beijing and it announced significant changes to our own military in response to that. Now, looking at the behind the scenes, though, it does seem like progress is continuing on getting trade back to normal. So Australia has paused its World Trade Organisation action against China over Bali. Associate Professor Scott Waldron him he works at the School of Agriculture at the University of Queensland and he's actually spent time in China and watches the trade there closely as well and he tells David Clawton it may take a while for it to recover. What we've seen now is a slow unravelling of those barriers again one by one so starting with coal allowing some shipments in there's some cotton getting in now we see a bit of movement on Bali, but for the others, then there hasn't been a resumption of trade. So it's, it's a sort of slow process. Trade could be expected to resume for different reasons for, for the different industries. And in the case of coal and for Bali, Chinese domestic interests requested that the Chinese government, and particularly uh, MOFCOM, the Ministry of Commerce, to reduce those barriers. Chinese steelmakers needed supply of higher grade um, coal from Australia. And for Bali, the decision of the Chinese government to review the barriers on Bali was made at the request of the China Alcohol Drinks Association. Um, Because they'd they'd be wanting Australian, good quality Australian barley for malting, yeah? That's right. They're the brewers, and they're highly were highly dependent on a good quality Australian barley. And in the initial investigation into dumping of Australian barley, that organisation made a submission against the barriers. It never wanted them because it was going to hurt its interests, um, and that was ignored by the Ministry of Commerce. Now, after nearly two and a half year period. It's now making the request to MOFCOM to completely stop all of those barriers. And that was made in a formal submission, public submission. 
That was Associate Professor Scott Waldron from the University of Queensland. And you can read more analysis about this complex trade relationship with China online at the ABC Rural website. The national egg shortage continues. You may have noticed in supermarkets it's a little bit harder to get eggs at the moment. And it's because producers are struggling to keep up with high production costs and the gradual move to a free-range market. Avian influenza continues to run rampant globally. It's killed almost a billion poultry birds so far, and it's actually recently claimed a human life in China as well. Eden Henninen has this report. This is the sound of thousands of hens clucking about on Tamsin Murray's free-range egg farm in central Victoria. They're living in one of her new sheds, built to house her rapidly expanding flock. But it hasn't been an easy year. You can never know looking into the future, but we did a massive expansion right just after the war <laughs> started. So it was in, you know, March of last year, March to June. You know, if I think of all the years of running the egg business, I don't know. Maybe it's not the hardest, but it's definitely been quite complex for us and we've had to make a lot of you know we've had to really sit down and look at our strategy with respect to our costs and also with pricing because whenever you change your cost you change your price and that you never know what happens to your customer when you change your price we haven't had we haven't made any cost price increases because we've grown And so we've added volume, we've tried to become more efficient, and we've actually got to the point now where that efficiency, we're still, we're we're struggling. So here we are, we're at our newest shed, Shed 12, and we have 5,000 birds in the shed, so they've all come out to greet us, because hens actually love to be around people. Miss Murray has doubled the size of her business in just 18 months and says while sales boomed during the peak of COVID, the aftermath was tough. Yeah, I think the the period post-COVID was was really hard in in that nothing actually was normal. (laughs) So it was like doing business was, you know, like there were no pallets, things didn't arrive when they were meant to, the supply chain was broken. So, and then we had no people. And when you run a business where everyone has a very valuable role, and you're short even two people on a day. Like I remember one day I looked around and we had seven, we were short seven staff. So seven staff out of 25 um, is massive. And so it really affected, you know, your ability to, or your culture and, and, and you know, helping your team manage without, you know, kind of everyone burning out. These issues have been felt throughout the entire industry number of egg farms across the state have disappeared over the past few years and the industry is still dealing with the national egg shortage. Caged egg farmer Brian Ahmed says there are a number of reasons why. We're running through a tough period with increased costs and farmers do struggle at times but um, the demand for egg is strong and depending on where you're selling eggs you you could be making a little bit extra but if you're contracted to supermarkets you could be struggling through this period. Because there's been an increase in demand for free-range eggs, farmers have been producing more free-range. And unfortunately, in those farming systems, the efficiencies aren't as good as, say, a cage system. And it's also dependent on weather and 
and temperatures and uh, of course there's a lot more disease outbreaks in those type of systems so you know we're probably running the same number of birds but we're not getting the same production so that's why we're a bit short of eggs. Woolworths and Coles say their eggs will be 100% cage free by 2025. Victorian Farmers Federation Egg Group President Meg Parkinson says this is already affecting the farmer's hip pocket. They're not going to have cage eggs anymore, which all that means really is that the price that they give farmers for cage eggs, that's what they'll give for barn-laid eggs. And the current price that they give for barn-laid, that's what they'll give then for uh, free-range eggs. This push for free-range egg production has created some biosecurity concerns. Avian influenza has killed half a billion poultry birds across the globe, and China recently recorded its first human death from the virus. While it hasn't reached Australia's doorstep yet, Mr Ahmed is nervous. Well, you only have to look what's happening around the world. If you have a look at the UK, they've got no free-range eggs at the moment because they've they've, um, locked up all their birds because they haven't been able to control disease. There's the virus is spreading through Europe and even through the US and Asia. Uh, unfortunately, no, no fault of the farmers. When we let birds out in the open, they tend to mix with wild birds and it's very clear that the wild birds uh, carry that disease and they spread it as, as they migrate around the world. Probably most people haven't heard, but we've had an AI avian influenza outbreak here only two, three years ago and we lost you know, almost a million birds here in Western Victoria. That story from Eden Henninen. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. You're listening to Countrywide. My name's Megan Hughes. Thanks for your company today. Agriculture is known for its innovation and the ability of farmers to adapt to new challenges. But you're about to hear from one man who's had to overcome more obstacles than most and could have some solutions to what is a nationwide challenge, accessibility in agriculture. This is the story of two best mates who are often told that what they wanted to achieve was downright impossible, but they were intent on proving everybody wrong. Reporter Angel Parsons has this story. Achieving what we've achieved with the harvest has proved that we can do a lot of things that people say you can't. So Yeah, everyone else saying, oh, no, you can't do that. <laughs> well, it's true. It was. It was. How are you going to do that? What about this? Just shut up and let us do it. Like, yeah. Paul Skembry's office is here inside the cab of a harvester, sitting high up above tall green fields of sugarcane ready to be cut. Copy that shit. <laughs> Farming is in his blood. His great-grandfather set up the family farm just outside of Mackay in the 1920s. Um, just like any normal farm boy, we just loved the land and loved machinery. And Yeah, I remember following Dad around like a little shadow, just sitting on tractor mudguards with him. And yeah, just wanted to be part of it all. Just, yeah, grew up loving it. And he always wanted a career outdoors on the land. But for a long time... Many thought that that was impossible. So I just went for a ride with me cousins and, yeah, I remember being probably 10 metres away from the corner and I don't remember anything after that. Wake up 10 days later in intensive care. Like, you know, here he was, 16-year-old. One minute he could walk, next minute he couldn't. I went to sit up and I couldn't and I thought, oh, we've got dramas here. Really surreal, it didn't really, yeah, it felt like a bad dream really, but you just never really woke up. 
Well, as a father, I was distraught in the initial stages of it. Uh, we weren't sure whether he was going to make it. He was quite seriously ill for some time. But as it became patently clear that he wouldn't walk again, uh, clearly I thought that he would not have a future as a farmer. And that was the mistake I made. He was recovering in hospital down in Brisbane for five months before finally returning home to the farm. And one night at two o'clock in the morning in my bedroom, I was woken up by welding flashes on the bedroom walls. And it was Paul in the shed with a welder and oxy because he wanted to perfect this device to lift him out of the wheelchair into the tractor. Eventually, Paul made some modifications to his dirt bike and was back riding again. Definitely scared. I was petrified. I remember they were holding me, ready to launch me, and I just remember just, like, the fear of it all, and it's put me here, but I could get back out of here, back up on the bike. And by this point, he'd had his fair share of life-changing moments, right? But, of course, another one came, this time in the form of a pretty blunt question from a stranger at the pub. Yeah, you come over and say, oh, so you're on a bike. What sort of an idiot are you? Well, you see she. The stranger was Sean Wells. He'd seen a Facebook video of Paul back on the bike and had a million questions for him when he recognised him at the bar. I just sort of asked, just started quizzing him how he'd, what he'd done to the motorbike and how he did certain things. And How did you do this? Well, then we started talking and, yeah, that's where it all started. Ten years later, their friends and colleagues who've designed what's believed to be a first for the sugarcane industry. It's the end of the day and Paul's parked up his harvester. Sean fetches his wheelchair from the car and brings it to the base of the huge machine. Another good day, sheep. Yep, there you go, mate. But thanks to a hydraulic lift system the pair engineered and fitted to the harvester last year, that's pretty much the only assistance Paul needs to be able to operate it. In its design phase, there was a lot of people doubting us and, yeah. And so what were you saying back to people? Hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> we know what we're doing. Yeah. Here's Paul's dad, also named Paul, who, by the way, massive name in Kane. He's kind of a rock star in the industry who was with the lobby group Kane Growers for nearly 40 years. And watching his son's journey, even he learnt a lot. Uh, surprised me, surprised everybody. Well, by its very nature, agriculture means that there are things on the move, machinery on the move, tractors and so forth there is uh, obviously that disadvantage. But what I've found is that there is no limit to the amount of innovation and ingenuity of people to design things to allow people to work uh, on farms. I think to be truthful, there's always the case that agriculture could be doing more. And, and I guess that every industry could be doing more. So Paul and Sean hope this shows what is possible. Yeah, you're nearly basically like anyone else up there. You can, yeah, I didn't feel really restricted or anything or limited. Yeah, once I got up in there, I felt like I could operate just as good as anyone else. He tries to do things that are impossible for anyone and still tries to do them, so, and have a laugh along the way. I guess that's the main thing too. If you're not smiling while you're doing it, well, if you're not having fun, well, what's the point? Now, if you want to catch more on that story, um, head to iView and check out Landline. It was on the other weekend, and the story is also online at the ABC Rural website. 
And finally today, organic coffee and cocoa Samoa farmer Mele Mawala wanted to learn more about growing dragon fruit that's still new to her country, Samoa. And on a trip to Rockhampton in central Queensland, she reached out to a local farmer. Dragon fruit is a relatively new fruit to Samoa, but um, it's taking up speed and people are really enjoying it. We're also finding it's a low maintenance plant to grow. So it's one of the plants we'd like to see expand and grow in Samoa. But for that reason, we need to know a little bit more about it and the diversity of varieties that are available. And Rockhampton has a really lovely dragon fruit grower. His name's Gary Lee of Lee's Dragon Fruit. We went to go visit him to find out more. Gary Lee grows around 90 different varieties on his farm in central Queensland. As well as selling the fruit, Mr Lee sells cuttings and said he often gets inquiries from overseas, but not from someone wanting to start an industry in another country. We have had inquiries from different places around the world, just on, through our online store or they've messaged us through Facebook and that sort of thing. But in actual fact, to have somebody come here that wanted to do some stuff. We did have another fella from um, one of the Malaysian countries, a doctor that was um, working here. He wanted to look at some stuff as well to try and improve what he had on his farm. So it's probably not the first time, but it's not something commonplace. We we do get a lot of people from around um, Australia itself. The industry itself, like, you know, obviously there is a level of competition. You're working with other businesses, but it sounds like there is a level of collaboration as well. The hardest part about dragon fruit is in Australia, there wasn't or isn't a lot of people that know a great deal about them, to be honest. Unfortunately, even for us, you know, it's a bit trial and error and you make a few mistakes and then you've got to rectify that because um, it is difficult for people um, to find people that can help you and on the other hand, wanting to help you because, yes, you know, you've still got that competition. He offered them technical advice on things like soil requirements for the fruit, but also gave a taste test of some of the varieties. There was one called American Beauty, and we all said, oh, this is a beauty. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, And it was beautiful too. The colour was so rich and garnet. It was just lovely to look at, um, but it was really lovely um, to taste as well. I think some people think dragon fruit can be quite a bland fruit if they have not been exposed to the variety uh, that exists. And we were really lucky because we got to taste quite a few in a row. We could see the, the broad palette of flavour that actually dragon fruit can offer. So I can understand why Gary is a bit passionate about it. As well as farming herself, Ms Mawala is an executive board member with the Samoa Women's Association of Growers. They hosted a workshop on the tropical fruit earlier this year in hopes of developing the industry. So we saw there was so much enthusiasm and interest. I think also because um, it's a low maintenance fruit, you don't have to do too much in terms of setting it up. It's also quite um, visually appealing. So lots of restaurants and hotels, the hospitality sector would like it. It's low in sugar. So we have a high NCD rate in Samoa. So to have fruit that's low in sugar, that's still tasty, was important. And uh, it's quite beautiful. So uh, I think we were all a little bit uh, bedazzled by it. (laughs) So where to from here in regards to establishing this as an industry back home? I think the first thing is to be able to um, provide more variety. Right now, there's only one variety, and I'm sorry I don't have the official name, but we call it the white variety in Samoa, so it's the white flesh. Right now, it's quite an expensive fruit. It's 20 tala per fruit, which is about, I guess, 10 Australian dollars. 
And uh, that means that really it's not something that can be eaten commonly um, in the household. It would really be sold to the hospitality sector. So we'd really love to encourage more women's committees and youth committees in village-based areas to start growing it. As we said, it's because it's so low maintenance, setting it up is not too difficult. And and then we'd love to see how we can expand. I, there are certain varieties that would be more appropriate for export than others, but uh, we're really just more interested in making sure it's accessible to everyone as well as the hospitality sector. So you really see this as not just becoming a, a cottage industry or something that smaller farms can use but actually could be potential for export? I think there's great potential in the future. More importantly now I think is uh, tapping into the interest and the curiosity of those who um, who want to do growing so that we can see the potential for those to, uh, to actually foster the, the industry. Then, of course, being able to have enough variety so that we really can create the interest and and not uh, flood the market with just one variety. I think that's the really important thing, to have diversity. Samoan farmer Meli Mawala ending that report. And that's it for Countrywide. You can hear all of these stories and more at the ABC Rural website, which is abc.net.au slash rural. I'm Megan Hughes. Goodbye for now. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.